At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed, have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters five through seven to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. This morning I want to begin with a thought experiment. So imagine with me for a minute if you woke up and you opened up your news reader and you were scrolling through headlines and you caught a headline that says Michigan is now covering the cost of all traffic violations. You're like, well that's curious. And you start to scroll down and read the article and you read in the article that the state of Michigan has initiated a new program that whoever signs up for it, they will cover whatever fine you incur both now and forever for any traffic violation that you would have. What do you think your response would be, right? I know what mine would be. Yes, I can finally drive how I want, right? I know you won't confess that, but I will. Right? I asked someone this week, what do you think you would do if, if this happened? And, and they said, I think I'd drive faster. Right? Probably most of us would feel that. Most of us would feel like, oh, great, I don't have to worry about the rules. I can do what I want, get out of the left lane. Now I can drive as fast and as, you know, as quick as I want down 696. Right? Our kind of natural gut reaction is if we knew that there was no fine to be paid, would it be just go hog wild? Now, at some point, we'd probably take a step back and think about it a little more. We might think, wait, hold on. I can driving however I want, doesn't that mean everyone else is going to start driving however they want? Like, and what is that going to mean for the road? Like, how is that going to work? Right? Like, we convince ourselves, like, I drive safely until you were late for work, and then you wouldn't drive safely. Right? But, but we know, and, and we intrinsically start to question, like, well, how does, how does this work? Like, if there's no penalty for the way we drive, if the rules are kind of out the window, won't everyone just go hog wild? Like, won't chaos and destruction begin to rule and reign if there's no penalty for breaking the law, no true penalty? In some ways, that thought experiment kind of reveals the tension that we're going to encounter in Romans chapter 6. Paul is wrestling with the reality of grace and what it means that in the gospel we have come to encounter God's grace. At the end of Romans chapter 5, the apostle Paul unpacks for us one of the most incredible truths of the good news of Jesus and that we are justified in his death and resurrection. Namely, that grace rules over the sin in our lives. That when Jesus is our spiritual representative, we are marked by his grace and the penalty of sin has been removed. You can actually see it. If you look at me in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says this, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Because of Jesus' obedience, you now have been declared righteous. All the penalty for your sinfulness, if you put your faith in Jesus, has been paid for by his death. So Paul says, that's so incredible that now the law came to increase the reality of our sin or trespass, but where sin increased, grace superabounded, if you remember that word, superabounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
For Paul, the reality that we've been justified by faith alone means that grace now covers sin in such a way that even where sin increases, grace superabounds over it, right? It smothers it and crushes it. It removes the penalty of sin incredibly and completely. This is one of the most liberating truths that you can come to know in your life, that when you trust Jesus, all the guilt for your sin, all the shame from your sin, all the penalty is removed by the cross of Jesus, that you will never have to pay those fines, that he has done that for you, and that God has shown us radical, inexhaustible, eternal grace. But for many, that begins to lead to a question. A question that Paul wants to raise in Romans 6. If the penalty for sin is removed by grace, and if when sin increases, grace just increases exponentially more, well then shouldn't I just live however I want? Can I just drive however I want if the penalty is gone? What motivates us then to not just sin all the more if we know there's no penalty and if we know that as we sin, grace only covers it exponentially more. Paul essentially asked that question right at the beginning of Romans chapter 6. He kind of brings to our attention the tension in two rhetorical questions. He says, what shall we say then? In light of this reality in Romans 5, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should our response be to grace to just live however we want? Well, Paul gives us an emphatic response in verse 2. He says, by no means. Paul uses this phrase, by no means, repeatedly throughout the book of Romans as a way to emphasize kind of the questions that people might challenge to what he's proclaiming in the reality of the gospel. It's, it's an emphatic phrase. It's, it's meant to have emphasis. Here's, here's the way I remember it. So that little phrase, by no means, in, in the original language in Greek is two words. It's the word me genoito, me genoito. Now, this isn't the correct translation, but a simple way you can remember when you encounter by no means is Paul's just saying mega no. Like mega no, you should not sin and think that grace will simply cover it and just live however you want, right? It's like, it's like the idea of just like, don't be ridiculous. Like that is not the way to respond to God's grace, and for Paul, that's the emphatic statement that he wants us to remember. Should we sin that grace should bound? Mega no, you shouldn't. No way. That is not the proper response to what God has done in the gospel. But Paul wants us to root that reality in a deeper truth. And so in response, he begins to give us two more rhetorical questions to help us understand why we shouldn't respond to the radical nature of God's grace by only living how we want and increasing sin in our life so grace can abound all the more. You see those come right away in verse 2. He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And then here's the second thing. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For Paul, the reason that we should not continue in sin is because we've died with Jesus. And in the symbol of baptism, which we'll unpack in a second, we see the reality that we've been baptized into his death. Paul unveils a startling spiritual truth here. Namely, that when we put our faith in Jesus and he becomes our spiritual representative, which is what we unpacked last week, 
not only does he represent us, but we're actually united with him spiritually in such a way that what becomes true of Jesus becomes true of us. That when he died, we died with him. And so Paul wants to say it's this underlying reality that should inform the way in which we respond to sin in our lives. And to illustrate that, to kind of root us and ground us in that reality, he moves into the illustration of baptism. And in some ways, it kind of brings us to the big idea that we want to unpack today, that our walk must match our baptism. For Paul, the reality of our baptism informs the reality in which we are called to live. And you actually see him make this transition in verse Three. Again, listen to it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be reunited with him in a resurrection like his. Paul turns to his attention to the reality of baptism to say what baptism declares and shows us is meant to inform the way in which we live. And therefore, the way we live should match what the reality of baptism ultimately proclaims. And so it's important for us to have a good understanding of why Paul's moving us and calling us and leading us into this reality of baptism and why this should be a grounding for us in how we respond to sin in our life and how we ultimately are called to live. So Paul kind of unpacks a few assumptions that he makes in this statement of baptism. One, Paul assumes in the text that if you have been, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you have been baptized. Baptism was the initiation that Jesus called his followers to, as they went and proclaimed the gospel, to initiate people into faith, that if people made public professions of faith, they would be baptized. That's why Jesus in Matthew 28 says, baptize them, in the, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a way that we publicly proclaim that we have put our faith in Jesus. If you're new to baptism, what we believe Scripture teaches is that baptism is simply the act where we take someone and we dunk them or immerse them in water and that we pull them out of the water. And it's a symbol of that in Christ they've died with him and they have risen again. Now, Paul assumes in the text that if you've put your faith in Jesus, that you've made that public through baptism. That's why he says in verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized. Right? His assumption to his audience is, if I'm talking to Christians, then you've been baptized, as many has. That the New Testament authors don't have a category in their mind that you would have put your faith in Jesus privately and not made that public through the act of baptism. That, that this is the way in which you displayed and declared that faith was through being baptized. So that's, that's Paul's assumption. If you've been immersed in Jesus spiritually, you've been immersed in water publicly to display that. The second thing that Paul assumes in the text is that baptism is a spiritual work. That there is something spiritual that happens in our baptism that we can go back to that encourages us in our faith in Jesus. That baptism isn't just empty symbolism. 
but it's actually spiritually meaningful to us, so much so that we can go back and draw upon it to help us in our following of Jesus. I think oftentimes, especially for those of us that are Protestant, in our effort to distance ourselves from the teachings of the Catholic Church and the idea that salvation is salvific or it saves you, we've often gone to the other extreme and removed any spiritual reality from baptism. So much so that it's just a symbol. That's all it is. It's nothing more. It's just a memorial. But what Paul assumes is that baptism actually is spiritual, spiritually meaningful. Now, let's be clear. We do not believe that baptism has anything to do with your salvation. We are only saved by grace alone through faith alone. That's what Paul spends all of Romans trying to unpack, that there is no work that you do that saves you. It is only by receiving the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf that we experience salvation. But that doesn't mean that baptism then doesn't have spiritual meaning in helping us in our journey of following Jesus when we've put our faith in him. It's not an empty symbol. It's spiritually meaningful. Michael Bird, who's a New Testament uh, professor from Australia, I know we have one Australian in the room, right, reminds us of the reality of baptism. He says this, for Paul, baptism is no empty symbol. It points us to the reality of sharing in Christ's death and resurrection, and in some way even ushers in that reality. If Jesus of Nazareth is the crucified and risen Lord, then baptism entails solidarity with him and placing our identity in him. For Paul, baptism spiritually reminds us that our identity has been united with Jesus. And as Jesus died, we have died. And as Jesus is raised, we are raised. Baptism reminds you and it reminds those around us of what Jesus has done in rescuing and saving us. That's why Paul in this text is going to point to the two realities of baptism that should shape our lives and that should become the motivating factor for how we respond to sin in our lives. These two realities really shape the next several verses. So we're going to unpack one of those realities today through verse 7, and then Pastor Joel's going to come next week, and he's going to unpack the other reality from verses 8 through 14. But I kind of want you to see how he introduces these realities in verse 4. So we've been baptized. He says, in baptism, the first reality is, in baptism we were buried, therefore, with Jesus by baptism into his death. In baptism, when we take someone and we immerse them under the water, the symbol that we proclaim is that when you put your faith in Jesus, you actually died with him. Your old self, your spiritual self was put in the grave and that it died just as Jesus died. And then Paul unpacks the second reality, which is this, that in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That baptism both symbolizes our death with Jesus, that we've been united with his death, but we've also been united with his resurrection. And that resurrection now shapes our life. Baptism becomes this beautiful symbol of what happens when you put your faith in Jesus. It's a symbol of that faith. That's why I often tell people when it comes to the reality of baptism, you know, we don't get to be at the moment when someone puts their faith in Jesus. 
right? When you put your faith in Jesus and God takes a dead heart and he makes it alive, when he rescues us from the place of sin and he brings us into his kingdom, we don't get to see that spiritual reality. But baptism gives us a symbol of what is taking place when you put your faith in Jesus. That you died with him, your sins have been covered by his death, and that you've been raised with him and you now have new life. The language that the church has used since the Reformation is that baptism is really a sign and seal of the reality of our salvation in Jesus. Let me unpack that a little bit because I think it's what Paul gets at at the heart of this passage, that baptism is both a sign and a seal of the reality of our salvation and covenant with Christ. You you might think of it this way, right? So one of the things that I love to do and I get the opportunity to do as a pastor is to marry people. And there's always a moment, if you've been to a wedding, you know how it goes. Generally, there's a moment where the couple stands and they make their vows of covenant to one another, right? They make the commitment that they are now going to be husband and wife, And then what takes place in a wedding right after that? Usually, in our context, they exchange rings, right? Why do they exchange rings? Because rings are a sign and a seal of the marriage covenant. Wedding rings are a sign, meaning that they point to something greater than themselves. They point to the covenant that's made between the couple. The covenant is not the ring, right? The covenant is the vow that is made. The ring only becomes a sign of that covenant. And I love to explain when I do weddings, you know, the reason we exchange rings in some ways is the symbolism of it. For instance, rings rings are round, symbolizing the unending nature of that marriage covenant. They're also genuinely made of pure metal, symbolizing the purity of intention that's given in that covenant. There's all sorts of symbolism that's laced in a ring. Right? What Paul's reminding us is that baptism in many ways is like that for us as Christians. It's a sign. It's pointing to a reality greater than itself. What baptism signifies to us are truths that if we put our faith in Jesus, we've been united in his death and resurrection and we now have a new life. Baptism signifies our cleansing from sin, That as the water washes over us, that we, the stain of sin, has been washed away, and we are now clean. Though your sins were as scarlet, they will be made as white as snow, baptism reminds us of. It signifies our immersion into Christ's Spirit, that we are immersed, baptized in the Spirit when we put our faith in Jesus. It signifies our joining to Christ's body. There's all this symbolism that's meant to remind us of our salvation. Baptism's not only a sign, though, it's a seal. So when you exchange rings, right, you put it on the finger, and this lives as a declaration to those around you that you are now bound to your spouse. Now, the binding doesn't take place because you put a ring on your finger, right? That's not what happens. But this becomes a seal. It reminds, it declares to others around you, this is who I am with. Baptism, in many ways, is meant to be the same thing. While it signifies to us and points to a sign of reality of salvation behind itself, it also declares to us and to the world around us that we are bound to Jesus, that we've been stamped and sealed with him. The same way a king might seal an envelope to show its authentic nature, we too have been sealed in Christ when we've put our faith with him, and baptism is a seal of that. 
And Paul's assumption is if you put your faith in Christ, you will have received this sign and seal over your life. Just like you wouldn't go to a a wedding ceremony and expect them to declare vows and have no symbol. Similarly, for us, if we put our faith in Jesus, then baptism becomes the symbol for us of the genuineness of our faith. It declares to the world and to us the truth of God. Therefore, baptism, when you're baptized, is a highly spiritual and significant act in your journey of following Jesus. God signifies to you what he has done through his salvation, that he has buried you in Jesus' death and he has raised you to new life. And it shows his seal over our lives that we are now bound to him. Paul wants us to take that reality of baptism and to begin to see that that should shape the reality of our life. That's why halfway through verse 5 he says, that we've been raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that we too might walk in newness of life. That if baptism reminds us we've died to sin, then that should shape the way we walk. It should shape the way we live. This is why we come back and say our walk should match our baptism. That for Paul, if what the truth that baptism symbolizes is true, then it should shape the way in which we live, which means we shouldn't embrace sin, but walk in the newness of life. That's why we call this series New-ish. Paul doesn't want us to walk new-ish in our lives, still under the reign of sin. He wants us to walk new, to experience the glorious freedom of being raised with Jesus and walking in the newness of life. For Paul, it's that that points ultimately to the future hope, that as we've died with Christ, we will be fully and finally raised in his return. Baptism is a powerful symbol that God has given us, which we are to come back to time and time again in our struggle with sin. Martin Luther, the famed reformer, originally started off as a monk. And when he lived his life as a monk, Martin Luther was overwhelmed by the reality of the weight of his sinfulness and the holiness of God. He wrote many times that in his early life as a monk, It would become almost paralyzing to him the fear and reality of his sin in light of God's justice and righteousness. And he felt that no matter what he could do as a monk, no matter what work he did, no matter what sacraments he performed, that he would never be able to get to the point where he could experience the salvation that God offers. Until Luther one day began, he was a brilliant mind, He began to teach through the book of Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. And as he did that, what he found was the truth that we've looked at previously, that we are not justified by our works, that we are ultimately justified by faith alone. That there is nothing we need to do to earn God's salvation, but that we merely receive what Jesus has done for on our behalf. This became so freeing to Luther that he would spend the rest of his life proclaiming and seeking to reform the church to remind us of the scriptural truth that we are justified by faith alone. But one of the realities for Luther is that his struggles with sin and temptation didn't cease even as he uncovered the truth of justification by faith alone, that there were times in his life, many times, where he would struggle. But the story often goes that one of the things that Luther would do in his life when he would face seasons of struggle or temptation or challenge is he would declare to himself repeatedly, I've been baptized. I've been baptized. 
For Luther, drawing back to the imagery of baptism was a way in which he reminded himself continually of the truth of the gospel, that we have died to sin and are risen in Christ. Luther, this so shaped Luther's reality that he actually put it in one of his key teachings for the Lutheran church in his larger catechism. And this is what he says about baptism. He says, therefore, every Christian has enough in baptism to learn and to practice all his life, for he has always enough to do to firmly believe what it promises and brings, victory over death and the devil, forgiveness of sin, the grace of God, the entire Christ, and the Holy Ghost with his gifts. Luther reminds us that baptism is a sign of all these glorious truths that God has made available to us. Therefore, he concludes, thus, we must regard baptism and make it profitable to ourselves, that when our sins and conscience oppress us, we strengthen ourselves and take comfort and say, nevertheless, I am baptized. But if I am baptized, it is promised me that I shall be saved and have eternal life both in soul and body. For Luther, it was drawing back to the reminder that we've been baptized in Jesus, symbolized in our baptism by water, that calls us into the place to say, we've been dead to sin and raised to new life. That his motivation to fight against sin and not walk its path was to draw his mind to the imagery of baptism. And it's a call and reminder to us that baptism is a powerful symbol that we go back to time and time again. If you're battling sin in your life and you've put your faith in Jesus and been baptized, Paul wants to draw your mind back to that reality, to say, think and dwell on it. Let that shape how you live. And he begins to unpack that reality then in verses 6 and 7. And he helps us to see that part of the reason that we don't continue is sin is because baptism reminds us that we died to sin. Look what Paul says in verse 6. We know. So because of this reality, this is what we know. He's now going to draw his conclusion and give us certain things, certain truths we can rest in. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Because of the reality of what baptism represents, Paul wants to draw us to the reminder that it reminds us that we died to sin. That our old self, that is our self that was represented by Adam, that was under sin and death that we looked at last week, that that self has ultimately been crucified with Jesus. That it's been killed just as Jesus hung on that cross and died. So if you've put your faith in him, your old self marked by sin and the reign of death died with Jesus him. Now Paul wants to unpack two truths from that reality that we have died with Christ in his baptism. The first one he says halfway through the verse, look, he says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So the first reason we were crucified with Christ is so that God, through Jesus's death, could remove the power of sin over your life. What Paul references there when he talks about the body of sin being made nothing, he's referencing the corporal and personal reality of sin. For Paul, sin is both a personal reality and a universal reality. That we all are connected with sin and its effects and its consequences under Adam. But in Jesus, we died to that way of life. That reality is no longer our reality. And although we feel at times the pull back into, in our personal being, into the body of sin, Paul wants to remind us, you've been cut off from that. That is no longer the reality that reigns over you. 
You are not defined by sin anymore. If anything, God has removed sin's power. It has been brought to nothing. The reason you don't continue in sin is because God's removed that power in your life. You don't have to continue to follow what it leads you towards. And then the second thing and second truth he wants to remind us is that we've been crucified with Christ so that, halfway through verse 6, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. For Paul, part of the reason we have been crucified with Christ and what baptism reminds us is we are no longer under sin's enslavement. That idea of being set free is the same root word that we see the word justified. We've been declared righteous. The penalty for sin has been removed. You're no longer under its bondage. Its consequences no longer define you. You've been given freedom in Jesus. That is now your new reality. And baptism is the constant reminder that you don't live in the world of sin. You live in the world of grace. That that is what should mark your reality. And we draw our mind back there to say, I don't live there anymore. I live in a new place. You know, as I was thinking about this passage, it kind of brought to mind uh, one of my favorite statues in the city of Detroit. I remember the, the first time I, I encountered it, and I just stopped and marveled it. It's the statue called the Gateway to Freedom. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's along the Detroit River Walk, but it's a statue that symbolizes how Detroit was the end of the Underground Railroad, and that slaves, when they would break free from the south, would travel through the Underground Railroad, many stops along the way to the north, in hopes to get to Detroit, that they then could cross the Detroit River and find freedom in Canada. And it's this beautiful picture and image of both the journey and the conclusion of the journey. And if you're ever down there, I just... I love it. I love all the symbolism of it. If you look from the front and the man pointing as their faces are turned towards the hope of freedom that's on the other side of the river, I love the symbol of the boy turned back, hearkening others to come to find freedom. And in so many ways, it brings this beautiful imagery of the promise of what it means to cross over that river for so many slaves during that time. That for them to finally get to Detroit, to get across the river, meant freedom. It meant that their lives were no longer marked by the slavery that they left behind, but they had new opportunities, a new life, a new way. I love, I love to stand behind the statue if you get the chance and you look over the water and you recognize what that water meant for them. The symbol, the reality of the promise of freedom, of salvation, that they no longer had to be enslaved. And I can't imagine that when they finally got the opportunity to cross over to the other side, I can't imagine that at that point they thought, you know what, somebody take me back across the river. Or I bet when they finally got the chance to, to recognize that they were free, that they didn't have to live under the threat of punishment or being pulled back, they thought, you know what, I just wanna keep living as a slave. No, I imagine when they got there, they ran full force into the new life that was promised. It wasn't easy. It wasn't hard. I'm not, or it wasn't, it wasn't, it was, wasn't easy. I know it was hard. I'm not saying that. But what I, what I know is that when they crossed that river to the other side, when they began to experience that freedom, there wasn't a looking back. And what Paul wants to remind you is if you've put your faith in Jesus, you've crossed to the other side. 
You're in a whole new place. You're in a whole new kingdom. And the reason you don't look back is you don't live there anymore. You don't live under sin. You don't live under its power. You're not defined by that. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you've come through those waters of baptism and you're now marked by his life, his righteousness, his grace. And some of you need reminded of that this morning because you're living under that power of sin. You feel it affect. You feel that pull. You feel that guilt. You feel that shame. You feel that call that says, come back. It's more comfortable over here. And what Paul wants to remind you is, no, draw your mind back to baptism. Draw your mind back and remind, I am free. I am no longer bound by sin. I am no longer a slave to its effects. I have a new king and a new land. That's where I live. Baptism becomes like that statue, this beautiful reminder of what we've crossed into. That we live in a new place and a new land. And that when the temptation of sin comes, we can come back and remind ourselves, sin is not what defines my life. Jesus does. And I don't know what you're struggling with this morning. I don't know what's in your heart that you feel that pull of sin. You know, I've been a pastor long enough. I know sometimes we have those things deep in our hearts that we just get comfortable with our sin. We start to feel, well, I just don't know if I'll ever be free from that. I don't know if I'll ever be able to experience that. And I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ has set you free. So walk into that newness of life. Doesn't mean there isn't work to do. There is. But don't get comfortable in that sin. You don't live in that place anymore. You live on the other side where you're free from it. And so this morning, I just thought as we, as we reflected on this passage, there were just a couple things of response that I wanted to lead us into and to kind of invite you into this morning. First is, if, if you've put your faith in Jesus and you've been baptized, man, Paul wants to remind you again the freedom that you have. And we're going to take some time at the end of the service to just worship, to celebrate that freedom, to say yes the cross is stronger than my sin. The resurrection is more powerful over my life than the sin that reigns in this world. Or maybe you're in that place where you've been struggling something and God just wants you to let go of that this morning, to be reminded of that truth that you're free in Jesus. But the second thing is I just thought about it this week is I not only want to invite us to just celebrate in the gospel to be reminded of our freedom, but I recognize that there's some of us that might be here this morning who first have never put our faith in Jesus. We've never made that inward confession to say, yes, Jesus, you are my king, and I trust that you died for my sins and you rose again, and I want to follow you. See, that's where freedom starts. Freedom starts with the inward trust in Jesus. And God wants to invite you to do that this morning. But I also recognize there might be some of us in this place who maybe we've done that, but we've never made the outward step of saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I want to make that public. I want to declare and show, yes, I'm with Jesus. I've been united in his death and resurrection. When Paul calls you to remind you of your baptism, of what that truth represents, I know there's some in this place who can't do that because you haven't followed in the call of Jesus to be baptized. And this morning we felt like, man, if that's you, we want to give you an opportunity to make your faith public, 
and say, yes, I am with Jesus. I have put my faith in him. To experience the spiritual reality that Paul points us to. It doesn't save you, but it marks a moment in your life that says, I'm going to declare outwardly what I've experienced inwardly by putting my faith in Jesus. So if that's you this morning, we want to invite you to be baptized. And we don't think you have to wait. If you've put your faith in Jesus, we think you can respond this morning. And so we filled up the baptismal and I heated it up. Don't worry. And right through this door, we have a room where we have t-shirts and shorts and towels and even hair stuff if you need it. Because we don't want to give you any obstacles to respond to the reality of what Jesus might be doing in your heart this morning. Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch on the side of the road and they're having a conversation and he recognizes this man knows and puts his faith in Jesus and he says, what's keeping me from being baptized? And Philip says, nothing. And they stop and baptize him basically in a puddle on the side of the road or river. I don't know what it was. But the reality is if you put your faith in Jesus, there's nothing hindering you from making that public. God wants to mark that moment so your mind can be drawn back time and time again. Several years ago, I was a pastor at another church, and I got the opportunity one Sunday to do baptisms. And that morning, there was a a woman in her 80s who got baptized. She was older. She's could barely be over five foot, and I don't think she weighed over 100 pounds sopping wet. Half my goal that morning was just to not break her when I took her into the water. But I'll never forget the conversation because she, she told me, you know, I've sat in this church for decades, and I've trusted in Jesus, and I felt his call time and time again to be baptized, but I always found an excuse. I always found some reason not to do it. But I finally decided that I needed to do it today. And I was so proud of her in that moment. I was so proud that this woman near towards the end of her life was willing to have the courage to say, I'm, I'm going to make my faith known for Jesus. But there was also part of me that felt sad that day. It felt sad that this woman sat trusting Jesus for 20 years, feeling the call of his spirit and missed opportunity after opportunity to step into that reality and to know the spiritual fruit of it. To know that when we struggle, we can draw our minds back and say, I've been baptized. It's not the water that did anything, but it reminds me of what Jesus did for me. And to be able to be encouraged and to be sealed in the reality of her faith. And so if that's you, maybe this morning that God's beginning to draw, maybe you felt that pulse, maybe you've put your faith in Jesus, or maybe you want to this morning. I'm going to pray in a moment, and I'm just going to ask us to bow our heads and close our eyes. And all I'm going to ask you to do is you can slip right through this door. And Pastor Joe and Pastor Joel on the other side, they just want to have a quick conversation with you to kind of walk you through the process. And then we want to baptize you this morning. We don't want you to wait one minute. If you put your faith in Jesus, we want that to be as public as we can make it in this place. Don't miss an opportunity to respond to what God might be doing in this moment. So I'm going to just invite us in this moment just to bow our heads, close our eyes, just to give us a moment of privacy. I'm going to pray over us. And then we're going to enter into worship. And if the Spirit begins to draw and oppress upon your heart, whether it's while I pray, whether it's while I sing, I invite you, just go right through that door. But let me pray. Father God, we are so grateful. So grateful for the truth of your word this morning that declares over us the reality of what Christ has done. Thank you that we are no longer marked by sin, but we are marked by grace. 
Thank you that no matter when even though sin increases, grace increases all the more. Let that be motivation not to turn from you to sin, but to walk towards you in newness of life, to embrace you. God, if there's anyone in this room who's just experienced, or maybe online who's experiencing and struggling with the power of sin, Holy Spirit, I pray you'd break through right now with the truth of Jesus and remind them they're free. If they put their faith in him, they are free. They live in a new land of freedom, not an old land of slavery. God, I pray that as we worship and celebrate, you would draw our minds back to the truth of what baptism symbolizes to us. And that it would cause us to celebrate, to worship, to renew our commitment to following after you. God, if there's anyone in this place that doesn't know you, I pray, work right now. Give them the courage to take a step forward. If they haven't been baptized, work right now. Holy Spirit, let the enemy have no foothold over this place. But let your spirit reign in this moment. We ask you to fall like fire as we worship, to move in power. God, show us your mercy as we see it in Jesus Christ, we pray. And let us just respond with celebration and worship. We love you. Move now, we ask, in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.